Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I encourage you to bring to church, or a device with an app on it, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. I asked you a few moments ago to think with me about heaven. You just sang a medley of hymns celebrating the great hope that all Christians share. It is one of the unifying beliefs of Christianity, not only in life after death, almost all religions affirm that, but in a specific hope of a life with God and those who are in the Lord after death in a real, tangible place, a new heaven and a new earth. And as I ask you to reflect on that, I ask you to continue thinking about that as we preach our second to final sermon in this series through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we've called Not in Vain. And the reason I use those words is because Paul uses those words on multiple occasions in the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And the reason he grabbed that word is because the word vain is understand as I've been teaching you weekly. First, for someone to be full of themselves. But then second and thirdly, in the English language and in Paul's language, marked by futility or having no real value. Paul grabs that word and uses it in a discussion among those who would deny a future resurrection, a future bodily experience of the afterlife. And and basically what Paul says is, if you deny the future resurrection of believers in Jesus, not only do you attack the resurrection of Jesus, But what you do is reduce Christianity to something that's empty and without meaning. It's basically moralism. It's just a group of beliefs to try to make you live a better life or have a better experience. And while no doubt walking with the Lord does make your life extraordinarily rich and full of meaning, the core of the gospel is that we are not home yet, that there is a future And our relationship with the Lord determines our ability to enjoy that future and to enjoy it in a real body. And so if you've been walking in this series with me, you know that chapter 15 is the most exhaustive treatment in the New Testament defending the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but the resurrection that awaits every person in Christ one day. In fact, if you've not been in the series with me, if you are a guest of ours, if you're tuning in online for the very first time, the good news is, due to the incredible people you never see behind the scenes, all of our messages are available all the time in every platform that you can go listen to a message. I encourage you to drop back and listen to God's Word throughout the week and continue to feed on a message that you've perhaps missed or that you want to hear again. It is not foreign for Paul to deal with people who scoff at the thought of a resurrection. Not in Corinth, but in Athens, Paul's preaching, and it's recorded in the book of Acts, and this is what it says. Paul is speaking because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's a reference to Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, 
Some mocked Paul, but fortunately, others said, we will hear you again about this. That's the first time a preacher ever got told, we think we'll come back next week. <laughs> so Paul understood that to preach the resurrection was to preach something that the world has to decide. Will it or will it not believe? In Corinth, they weren't necessarily denying the resurrection of Jesus. They were just allowing the Greco-Roman religious pluralism of the day to influence their thoughts about themselves. In the ancient world, as is true in the modern world, most people thought your body's bad and your spirit's good. In fact, the theology of the day is people are born pure and innocent and the world corrupts them. The Bible does not teach that one bit. The Bible clearly teaches that people's environment absolutely can affect their faith, their behavior, their morality. But in our core, we are born with the potential for good, but also with the potential for sin because we are born sinners marked by the curse of sin. And so we know that evil not only lies around us, evil lies within our own hearts, which is why the message of the gospel is not that Jesus comes in and buffs off the rough edges. It's that he gives you a new heart. This is why we don't say you're reformed. We say you're reborn. You're born again in Christ. However, in, Cor in Corinth, they were saying, well, the spirit's good, the body's bad, so when we die, our spirit goes on to be with the Lord. Why would we ever want to be joined with our body again? And so Paul comes forward clarifying, wait a minute. Just as Jesus was resurrected spiritually, he was also resurrected bodily. While our bodies have the capability of doing things wrong and our bodies are certainly susceptible to disease and sickness and all of us are feeling the effects of age in our life, our bodies, like our souls, were once created in the full image of God and intended before sin to be the tool, the instrument with which we lived out our lives. So we need to respect, love, and honor that heaven and earth, the new earth, will be a place not only for our soul, but for our bodies. Our eternal life is not a spiritual limbo to be experienced in some immaterial, metaphysical, uh, supernatural, elevated state of enlightenment. No, 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 no. It's going to be real. We're going to really hug one another. I'm going to really sit on your porch. Some of you are so godly, I'll probably be putting out your mulch. I'm going to be there, though. And, and, and I'm going to really sit at your table, and you're going to sit at my table, and we're going to laugh and enjoy the joyous occasions of celebrations and food and all of the experiences that make being a human being a human. And that's why Paul takes to task this idea of defending the bodily resurrection of every Christian. And at this point, to be honest with you, Paul, not me, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm very happy today. Paul's a little frustrated. And so he begins to close the chapter over the next two weeks. We'll close it today and next week with a pretty, pretty harsh rebuke. Look what happens beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? 
with what kind of body do they come? Now, this is where it's pretty hard language. You foolish person. It just never goes well for me when somebody starts a sentence like that. I'm going to answer your question, you fool. This is what Paul is doing. And, and what he does over the next few sentences is he really answers the objectives. So you, you got questions about the resurrection? Well, Paul's got answers. I mean, he's got the answers. When you think about those questions, Paul has the answers. And in thinking about those answers, he really answers them in two. So if you'll allow me to play on the words, this is just too important. This is too important. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection, verse 42, of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, verse 45, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual, and then he closes with just a few sentences. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." It's like Paul theologically rolls a dry erase board out. And he says, let me explain this to you one more time. It's not that the Corinthians are stuck just on the thought of being resurrected. They want to know, what am I going to be like when I'm taken out of the ground? Horror movies are written about people coming out of the ground. It's alarming to us to think about the dead living again, a la Pet Cemetery. But when, when we really dig down, this is ultimately what Paul does. First, he speaks of two movements. There are two movements. The first movement is the one that's most graphic, but will certainly be appropriate in our language. It is the movement from life to death. And we know what the Corinthians knew. A dead body does not remain in the state it is when it is living. N not only is that true, it's also true that a dead body does not remain in its dead state. 
In, in other words, the minute a body dies, care for the body does not stop. Before a body dies, if there is hope of healing, physicians and nurses care for that body. Once hope of healing is gone and the body cannot recover and death is imminent, an entirely different type of medicine and care is given. My mother retired as a hospice care nurse. It was a great ministry for her. Every family in our church that enjoys the blessing of hospice care during a sorrowful time always says that there is a noted difference in the level of care, and it is not because the doctors and the nurses who are attempting to help a loved one recover are not given at what they do, it is because of their aim. Their aim and their goal when you are trying to rehabilitate someone is that you will put them through difficulty and pain and medication and surgical procedure, and it may be difficult, but you will do that in an effort to save or sustain their life. But once the decision is made that an illness is too prolonged, that someone's Fate is sealed and outside of a miracle, medicine will not save them. You then switch from focusing on gaining them quantity of life to focusing on giving them quality of life. And pain management comes into place and caring for the person holistically is a good thing. And then when death comes, another group of professionals take over. Those men and women called of God to work in the funeral home industry and ministry. And if you talk to most of them, they too will feel it. It is a calling. And I'm grateful for their ministry in our lives. And they have no medical training in relationship to pain management because the body is no longer in pain. All of their training is in preservation. Why? Because the moment a body, anybody, a human, an animal, or even a plant, the moment life ends disintegration, decomposition begins because we are organic. We are spiritual and we are organic. And so we see this happening. The Corinthians saw this happening. This is what was wigging them out. They were like, I don't know if I like the thought of God raising up my loved one because I remember the state my loved one was in when I buried them. And remember, this is the ancient world. And while the ancient Egyptians practiced a form of mummification and embalming, most of the ancient world did not. The Hebrews didn't. The Hebrews lovingly cared for the body with perfume, ointments. Why? Because of the stench. And they wrapped the body, and they put the body in the tomb. And then a year later, they would go back into the tomb and collect the bones because the flesh would have decomposed. They would place the bones in a bone box and that box would be placed on a shelf in the tomb, and the place where the body was laid would be used again and again and again. This is, of course, why Jesus needed a tomb last minute, and Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb freshly cut for his family. The good news is Jesus didn't need it for long. However, they understood the difficulty, the disrespect, the dishonor of disintegration. And Paul throws agronomy in front of them. Agronomy, of course, is agriculture. The idea of how we grow food from plants and animals. And, and when you study agronomy and you get into botany, the study of plant reproduction, everybody knows that plants don't come from living plants. 
plants come from dead seeds. That's how they come. And so Paul uses that analogy. Look at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, you foolish person? What you sow, and Paul knows all these people understand how to plant crops. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of weed or of some other grain. The seeds pictured here were actually excavated in a place called Masada. They are 2,000-year-old seeds. And guess what happened when they planted them? They began to grow date trees. So something dead, even in the natural world, can lead to something alive, which is why Paul points out it is not foreign to believe that if God, even in the natural realm, without miraculous power, can bring forth life from that which is dead, that which has to die in order to germinate, then certainly God, in the miracle working power of his glory, can bring forth life from the dead. But it's not just the movement from death or life to death. It's the movement from death to life. We have continuation. Notice what Paul says, because I think this is important. There was some mystery to it. They were saying, well, if I am going to be raised, will I be a different being? Paul points back to plants, and he says, wait a minute. Do you plant a wheat seed and expect corn? Do you plant a corn seed and expect some form of melon? No. Whatever dies and then is planted and germinated, it is of that kind that is resurrected. Look at verse 37. This is what the Bible says. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Let me translate that. On that great getting up morning when you are resurrected, you're going to be you. You're going to be you. One of the most ancient books in all the Bible teaches this. You know what Job said? He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives. It was a great song a few years ago. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job knew of a second coming. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, Job knew of death. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, Job knew of resurrection, whom I shall see for myself, not some angelic being with my name, not some version of me that has no relevance to what I used to be. No, no, no. And my eyes shall behold, and then Job adds, and not another, and he's so overwhelmed by this, my heart faints within me. When the Lord Jesus was resurrected, after their eyes were lifted into enlightenment, he was seen and recognized for who he was. When Lazarus came out of the grave, they knew he was Lazarus. So your bodily resurrection will be you. Not you in decomposition, not you in a diseased state, not you decrepit and aged. It will be you, though, and you will be known as your 
self. You and I, if you are in Christ, will enjoy the joy of having the memory of our long-standing, loving human relationships in glory. It's not as if we're recreated angelic beings. We're not recreated, we're resurrected. And that is a fundamental difference that is very important. Recreation has an unbiblical theology called reincarnation. We are not reincarnated into another being. We are resurrected, fully known as we were known, but fully free from the curse of sin and disease and the disaster that may have been our ticket to heaven. Two movements. One movement is from life to death, and one is from death to life. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, it's kind of deep, and I understand that. But you're going to walk with somebody as they move from life to death. You probably already have. Some of you have buried mama or daddy. Others of you have buried a son or a daughter. Some of you have buried a husband or a wife, a father or a mother. And when you go through that, one of the things that is so hard is that you watch death come upon them. Now, the glorious ending we all want is to live a long and good life and to be surrounded by our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and have our consciousness aware of who they are and be able to speak with them all and go to sleep and wake up in glory. There are occasions where I have witnessed that beautiful passing, but it is not the norm. What usually takes us to the presence of Jesus is the effects of age, disease, dementia, and in certain circumstances, disaster. Whether it be an accident, a vehicle, a tumor, something. And when that takes place, we watch and love and bleed sorrow as our loved one's body transforms into death. But the good news is, the resurrection is a total reversal of that. If they were in Christ, you will never see them in that state again. And they are not in that state today. Their body may very well have begun and continue to decompose. But their soul is with the Lord, and upon the resurrection of the dead in Christ, their soul will be joined with what was sown in sickness and disease and death, but what will be raised in life and glory. So the hope, the hope of this passage ought to ring true in your heart when your family faces the death of a loved one. The two movements are then backed up by two models. The two models that Paul goes off on are earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. I really don't know why, but my job is not to make up the content. I just have to explain it to you. The Bible says, He's, he begins in verse 39, for not all flesh is of the same, 
But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Notice the distinction, and notice how that flies in the face of a modern worldview that we are all linked by some sinister Darwinistic evolution that we're all from some single cell amoeba, amoeba in the right pool of warm water at the conclusion of a big bang. All of that, of course, does not line up with Scripture. You cannot line the two up. You cannot reconcile the two. No matter what modern teachers may tell you, even some you may have respected, the Bible teaches creation, that we are made in the image of God and we are distinguished. Are there similarities that God has given his creation? Sure. Read several years ago, many of you read where a gentleman received a heart transplant from the heart of a pig because they are so similar in their biological makeup. That, that is true. We have similarities with the animal world and with the plant world around us. But nowhere in Scripture are we to blur those lines and teach that we are somehow evolutionary cousins to these organisms. That's not what the Bible presents. The Bible presents us as being different. And notice the order, humans at the top, then animals, then birds, then fish. In the ancient world, this would have been the order of their understanding of the complexity of flesh. And then Paul switched from the biological world, the anatomical world, to the heavenly world. He looks around at what he can observe. He leaves the organic world and he goes to that which is inorganic, that which is more hard, that which is made out of matters such as dust and rock and gas. He talks about the heavenly bodies. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 43 or 42. It is shown in a natural body. It is also sown in weakness. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Humans did not have any satellites in orbit at this time. But guess what we have discovered? All stars are different. Every heavenly body has a different makeup. And yet the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this many, many years before mankind's knowledge affirmed what God already knew. Why does God know it? Because God spoke it into existence and holds it by the palm of his hand. And so in the scriptures... They're just differences of flesh. What's Paul's point? Here's Paul's point. We will be like we were upon the resurrection, but we will also be different. How will we be different? Well, then he contrasts two moments. The moment you are buried versus the moment you're resurrected. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Here's the two different bodies, if you will. Notice, what is sown is perishable. That's why we bury dead bodies. They've ceased to live. They've perished. It's perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Once you're resurrected, you will never die again. It is sown in dishonor. Now, this doesn't mean we don't honor the dead. We do. But think about dignity. Dignity, in human terms, is being able to care for yourselves. In fact, you have elderly loved ones right now who are struggling with the loss of their dignity. It is a hard thing, especially for some of our loved ones, to receive 
the basic bodily care they used to do for themselves. It is a hard thing to preserve the dignity of a man or a woman who can no longer dress themselves or no longer use the restroom on their own or no longer bathe themselves. And one of the things we do when we care for the elderly is we try to sustain and maintain as much dignity as we care for them. But eventually, dignity is lost. Dignity and honor are lost. Well, think about a dead body. A dead body cannot clean itself. A dead body cannot dress itself. A dead body can do nothing for itself. There is dignity in the life that was lived, but there's no dignity in the body. Now look at that in contrast to the passage. He says in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, in that term, natural and spiritual are not material and immaterial. We typically do that. When we hear natural and spiritual, we think, oh, natural is what I can touch, and spiritual kind of floats around. It's mysterious. That's not what he means here. He's not talking about material versus immaterial. He's not talking about the difference between being happy and your car. Your car is a thing. We can kick the tires. You can pay it off. You can wreck it. You can wash it. Your children can destroy it. It's material. It's material. Your emotions are immaterial. I can't show happy. I can feel happy. I can feel sad, but it's not a thing. I can't touch happy. I can touch things or be in places that might make me happy, but happy is an immaterial emotion. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that you were buried material and you'll be raised immaterial. Don't think white gowns, harps, halos floating on clouds in an immaterial world of mysticism. No, no, no. He's saying you were buried fully under the curse of being natural of this world. When you are raised, you will be fully spiritual as God intended you to be. Think about what sin did. One of the things that sin did when it entered humanity is it completely destroyed man and woman's ability to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. Which is why when someone is forgiven of their sin, what's the first gift of God to a Christian? The Spirit of God to come live in them. You have to get saved to get the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit cannot dwell in a body ruled by sin. Well, when we are resurrected, there'll be no need for salvation. That's already happened. That's the prerequisite. And in that great resurrection, we will be fully spiritual, completely in tune with the will and the word and the ways of God. There'll be no tug of war in our heart anymore. There'll be no wrestling match between what we know is right and what we know is wrong. There'll be no weakness to temptation. He goes on to say, In this same passage, beginning in verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And Paul points that out. You know we have natural bodies, so by default, if we know there's a natural world and a spiritual world, a here life and an afterlife, if there is a natural body, there then by default must be acknowledged that there is a spiritual body. When we think about that, I think about people like Joni Erickson Tata. Many of you may have read her books. She's a dynamic Bible teacher, motivational speaker, so inspirational. At age 17, diving into some water, she broke her neck. She's a quadriplegic. 
She spent two years in deep depression and came out of that with a renewed sense of what God had called her to do, which is to inspire people to follow Jesus. She wrote in a book about heaven these words, Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. She's been reading 1 Corinthians 15. If there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, she says. Depends on what my glorified body looks like as to whether or not I. Laurel and I went to a conference a few weeks ago in Miami. I'd never been to Miami, and it was kind of bougie. It was nice. Thank you. And uh, one thing I noticed about our room is that those folks down there like to look at themselves. There were mirrors everywhere. I'm good with one mirror just to sort of check, you know, zipper, booger, good, let's go. I don't want mirrors around when I'm bending over, drying off after taking a shower. I just, I just don't. I just, I'm just glad my eyes face this way. I don't. If there are mirrors in heaven and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Joni, although a much better, brighter Joni. I don't think I could say it any better than that. The moment of burial will be overshadowed by the moment of resurrection. Finally, he ends by saying there are two men. He takes it all the way to the first man and the last man, the man of the earth and the man of God. Adam, whose sin cursed us, and Christ, whose grace saves us. Look how this passage ends. I love it. It really starts in verse 45. Thus it is written, and he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's important. Adam had to be made living. But then watch the contrast. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus did not have to be created, for he has always existed as Christ, the second person of the Trinity. But upon his resurrection, God bestowed on him the ability to give everyone eternal life. And so the first man had to be given life. The second man gives life to those cursed by the first man's fall. And so he goes on to contrast them when he says these words beginning in verse 46. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam got here because God made him in the dirt. Jesus got here because God sent him. He already existed. The Bible says, beginning in verse 49, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of of heaven. You cannot separate the resurrection from the one who gives us the resurrection, which is why Paul says to the Philippian believers these words, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then watch what Paul says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I like how John said it. John agreed. John said, beloved, we're God's children now. If you're saved, you're his child today. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Hadn't fully seen it. I've read about it. 
hadn't seen it. But we know that when he appears, that's the kicker, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Well, what's he like? Well, he's resurrected. And we shall be like him. Two of the most important men in my life at the formation of our church's relationship were named Jim and Sam. Jim was killed in a car accident several years ago. It was bad. Massive brain trauma. Due to that, his wife made the decision to have him cremated. But the funeral home required for a family member to come and verbally say, this is Jim. Well, when you're in situations like that as a pastor, you, there's no brochure. You just meet needs. When people are going through shock, they can't make decisions. So you make little decisions for them, like send for food, send somebody to clean their house, somebody to cut the yard. You don't be forceful, but you be forceful. They thank you for it later, but you just make as many decisions as you need to make. And so I remember sitting in the hospital looking at his widow and saying, I'll do that. Well, after his body was taken to the funeral home, I got the phone call and I was on my way to, I think, coach an upward soccer game by myself. Some people struggle with uh, intimidation or anxiety. They get nervous. I don't. Very seldom that I feel intimidated. You have to be intelligent to be intimidated. I just sort of walk through life best I can. But I remember driving over being intimidated, wondering what I was going to have to look at. And actually, it was quite pleasant. If you're in the medical world, you know that after all the tubes are taken out and all the medications done, after a few hours, a lot of the swelling goes down, and he looked quite peaceful. But I stood in the chapel of that funeral home by myself, and I looked at him in his hospital gown with a nice blanket over him. And I thought, I'll never see you like this again. And I'm so thankful. Sam died in his garage. I got the phone call and got there before the EMS did. And I combed his hair and wiped his face off. Pulled him out of the doorway. I sat with him a moment. And then I stepped over his body and went into the house and was with his widow. That's what he would have wanted me to do. He was not in that garage. And as I helped him load him on the gurney and I stood there with his son and his wife and they said goodbyes. And I brushed his hair. I thought, I'll never see you like this again. And I'm so thankful. Because when I think about Jim and Sam now, I, I can recall those moments, but that's not what I think about. I think about the laughter and the arguments. <laughs> I think about the delicious meals and the fun, navigating tough issues. And every time I study the resurrection, I think about those people I can't wait to see. And then I'm reminded what the passage would do. It would draw me away from focusing on them first, and it would remind me we're all going to want to see the same guy. I want to see him because he's the reason we'll be there. Can I just tell you you'll live differently if you live with that day in mind this week? 
Stuff's going to happen this week. Fender benders, messed up spreadsheets, and stomach viruses, and bills you can't pay, and weight you seem to can't lose. Stuff's going to happen. And in the middle of you and I getting worked up and angry and mad and anxious and frustrated and scared and impatient, would you just stop and think about that great getting up morning and then make decisions with that day in mind?